Well, from time to time, topics come up in the Brandon household, which I trust and hope come up for you in your household as well. Topics which afford us an opportunity to speak to our children of the great dangers that await them as they grow older. Periodically, from time to time, things come up in our household about alcohol and drugs or friends or maybe destructive habits or or music that is dangerous or other things. Oftentimes, it comes by a case example. You remember when Solomon was out walking and he noticed the field of the sluggard. How did he know that the, the sluggard was the one over that field? Because weeds were growing up. And he took his sons and he said, you see that field there? See how the weeds are growing up and see how not much is growing? That is the field of the sluggard. And my son, if you are like that, that is what awaits you as well. And oftentimes with our our children, maybe we hear of some instance of someone who has destroyed their life through alcohol. And we know of them, we know of some relatives of ours who have died prematurely because alcohol has destroyed their liver. And what we seek to do is try to show them of the end and of the terrible destruction that is. And then we tell to them, we say to them, alcohol did this. We try to tell them that there's nothing wrong with drinking a beer, having a glass of wine. But we tell them that drunkenness is wrong. And we tell them that if you get addicted to alcohol, this very well may be the end of your life. You'll die early. Have massive sufferings. Just from the the health problems that that cause, you may lose your job. And so we often tell our, our children is, you know, it's best not to start because of all the implications of everything that can end down the road. We sometimes tell our children, maybe we see something in... Uh, in the car, in, in, in the newspaper, some car that was all mangled. We say, that's the end of using drugs. Sometimes perhaps we read of a murder or hear of something like that. And we say, this is what happens when you involve yourself in a life of sin. And you see what we do in our household? Do you parents have discussions like this in your home? I hope you do. And you see how I'm reasoning? What I'm saying is, this is the end which these things are causing And you don't want to be like this, do you? And of course, the children don't want to be like that. And so what we tell them is then, don't do the things that lead up to that. Perhaps we hear of a a divorce. People get divorced. And the devastation that causes in a family, just emotionally, relationally, the implications financially, it's just devastating. And we talk to them sometimes about, you know, those who are experiencing difficulties because they're divorced. We say, that's how important it is for you to stay faithful in your marriage. And as our kids get older, more and more appropriate material will come their ways. And I think it's good for us even to talk to our children like that. And really my message this morning is along these same lines. I want for us to look at the end of the Pharisees and the scribes. I want us to see what what their result is. What's their end? And admonish you as a church family to say, well, don't be like them that you might not reach their end. And we have been in recent weeks in Matthew 23. If you're not open there, I invite you to open your Bibles in Matthew chapter 23. A few weeks ago, perhaps you remember the strong words that Jesus delivered of condemnation to these scribes and Pharisees. In no uncertain words, Jesus is telling the world that these religious leaders have it all wrong. And they are being condemned. They may look spiritual, they may say spiritual things, they may do religious activities, but Jesus says their spirituality is bankrupt and leading them to hell. What's interesting here is it's not drugs or alcohol that brought this condemnation upon them. It's not television, and too many computer games causing a sluggardliness about them that has caused their end in destruction. It's not sexual unfaithfulness. You need to hear this strong and clear this morning. It's their religion that brought them down. It was their morality that brought them down. 
because their morality was skin deep. It was their hypocrisy, ultimately, that caused Jesus to give them such strong words. And at Rock Valley Bible Church, we need to be careful as a church not to bring people down with religion. Let's not bring people into a love of religion and religious things and religious talks and religious music. Let's bring people into a love for God. That's one thing that these Pharisees lacked. They had all the outward show, but they lacked the heart. Inwardly, they were corrupt and rebellious. In fact, look at some of the things that Jesus said to these scribes and Pharisees. It will shock you. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. You can just look through there. We've looked at that before. But also on two occasions, Jesus said that these were blind guides. You see that there in verses 16 and verse 24. Picture that. The guy is blind and he's saying, hey, come follow me. I'll show you where to go. May as well trip himself. Guiding other people along that way. And that's where the Pharisees were. They were blind guides. In fact, on three other occasions, Jesus calls them blind. Verse 17, verse 19, and verse 26. He said, you guys are blind. You can't see it. The reality is there in front of your face, but you are blind and can't see it. Jesus says, verse 13, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 14, they will receive a greater condemnation. Verse 15, they are sons of hell. In verse 17, he calls them fools. In verse 25, he says that they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In verse 28, it says they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you look down at verse 33, it says that they are serpents and a brood of vipers. Jesus even said in verse 35 that they are murderers. These who look so nice on the outside in their religion internally were corrupt and wicked and evil and bad. And Jesus said... They can only expect the judgment of God. That is their end. A few weeks ago, my message was entitled, How to Avoid Condemnation. My reasoning was simple. The scribes and the Pharisees were condemned for these things that Jesus put forth in Matthew 23. And if we are like them, we will be condemned as well. And to avoid our condemnation, we need to steer clear of these Pharisees. Just like we tell our children of the terrible things that await them if they engage themselves in wrongful, sinful, addictive activities. So also, I'm telling you, church family, of these things that will await you, will await us if we are like these Pharisees. A few years ago, the slogan was, Be like Mike. Do you remember hearing that slogan? Be like Mike. Talking about Michael Jordan. Well, my admonition this morning, my slogan this morning is this, Flee the Pharisee. Maybe that ought to be on commercial televisions. Flee the Pharisee. It's what we need to do. The things that Jesus condemns them for, we need to flee from. Jesus began his condemnation, really these woes, in verse 13. And the lesson really for us is clear. Rather than being misled, verse 13, away from the kingdom of heaven, we need to get the gospel right, is what I said two weeks ago. Get the gospel right and know how it is you get into heaven. It's only through the free free mercy of grace in Christ. So we trust and believe in His sacrifice on the cross. Verse 14, rather than using religion for our own good, we need to serve others and not ourselves. Verse 15, rather than being influenced by those who are leading others to hell, we need to avoid the false leaders. You see a false leader? Boy, you flee the Pharisee. And now my fourth point of my message, maybe my first point this morning. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. We're just going to look at the next two woes. Verses 16 has one woe. Verse 23 has another woe. We'll look this morning at the first woe here, number verse 16. They teach us that we need to be truthful. We need to be truthful. In these seven verses, from verse 16 to 24, Jesus will say the same thing again and again and again and again to drive home his main point. These Pharisees were deceitful. They had figured out ways to deceive others while justifying themselves they're telling the truth. Right? Look at what Jesus said in verse 16. He said, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple 
that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he is obligated. It's what Jesus said. And he's referring to this practice of the Jews that allowed them not to be truthful. They arranged this scheme, right, which could make an oath before the Lord, which meant nothing. Right, as long as you swore by the temple, it doesn't have any binding significance. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you must keep your oath. For instance, you know, just, I'm just trying to flush this out a little bit. Husbands, imagine you have a bloop, 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 a leaky faucet. And in the busyness of life, you simply haven't got around to fixing it. And your wife says, honey, bloop, bloop, when, bloop, bloop, are you going to fix that faucet? Bloop, bloop, bloop. And uh, you say, well, I'll fix it Saturday. And now she knows your past action. And she says, oh, okay. Are you sure you're going to fix it Saturday? Are you really going to do it? And you say, yes, I swear by the temple I'll fix the faucet on Saturday. So Saturday comes, and what, what takes place? Right? You sleep in a little bit. Been getting up early all week long. You putz around the house, doing a lot of nothing. You do some paperwork, read some magazines, watch a few hours of television. It's time to go to bed. Your wife asks you, hearing this, bloop, 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 honey, did you fix the faucet? This no, I didn't. And then she replies with disappointment, but, but you promised you'd fix the faucet today. He said, um, no, I didn't. She said, yes, you did. You swore by the temple itself you'd fix the faucet today. And then you say in your smugness, ah, but I didn't promise by the gold in the temple, now did I? With no remorse, you go off to bed. Right? Your promise wasn't binding because you didn't use the G word. You didn't use gold. And essentially, these scribes and Pharisees really permitted people to make all sorts of false promises, which they never had any intention of fulfilling in the first place. And, and here's what it is. It allowed them, and here's where the hypocrisy comes, it allowed them to, to, to show that they were really earnest in something. But really behind it all, they weren't earnest at all. And that's hypocrisy, and that is deceitful. And we need to be truthful with our words. In verse 18, the same practice... Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he's obligated. Another scenario might go like this, right? You have some neighbors that are going off on an extended vacation. They're going to be gone for a few weeks. And you talk with them and you say, you know, do you need anyone to watch your house while you're gone? And maybe they made some arrangements. And maybe you say, well, I tell you what, how about if it snows, I'll shovel your driveway. And your neighbor says, Really, you do that? You say, yeah, yeah, I do that. And your neighbor says, are you sure? And he says, sure, I swear by the altar that I'll shovel your driveway. Just to make it look like people are, are there. And then off they go on vacation, the snow falls. And you don't shovel their driveway. Right? Secretly, if you're like me, you'd probably hope that the sun comes out and melts it away, right? And then your conscience in your home gets to you. Your wife is talking to you about, hey, didn't you agree to shovel your neighbor's driveway? And he said, I didn't promise that. Yeah, in fact... I remember, I overheard that conversation. You swore by the altar. Ah, but I didn't swear by the offering upon the altar. I don't have to do that, right? You put up a front, you're kind and generous. When you didn't want to keep your promise. You were free because you didn't swear by the magic words. You didn't use the O word. You didn't say offering. In a sense, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were legalizing lying. Legalizing lying. <clears throat> and I trust you see how ridiculous that is. How to make a show. I mean, kids, is that ridiculous? Is that ridiculous? Absolutely. And I'm so glad we live in the 21st century, live far above such nonsense and never do anything like that. Isn't that so good? <clears throat> no, our society knows about this as every society does. We may not swear by the temple, the altar, but we have our own substitutes, right? One of the substitutes I remember as a child, maybe kids still do this, is the, the old cross your finger trick, right? You make a promise and, you know, you got your hand maybe in your pocket and you got cross, fingers crossed or behind your back and you've crossed your fingers and so you don't have to keep your promise. That's the same thing. <clears throat> and in fact, we have developed ways to swear to say that we're really telling the truth, Right? 
Maybe, children, you can finish the phrase, right? I'm telling you the truth. Cross my heart, hope did I stick a needle in my eye. I mean, we all know that because that we need to have phrases that say, I'm really in earnest because there are so many times in which we aren't in earnest. And the existence of those phrases are a mere testimony of the fact that we aren't truth-tellers often enough as a society. Unless we adults think we've outgrown such childish behavior, let me remind you that we sign contracts with pen and ink. Right? Often people will try to worm their way out of a promise made because there's no proof. Well, I did, did I put that in writing? Right? Employers promise things, but they never put it in writing. We know about that? We know about that. Right? That if it's not in writing, there's no binding nature to that. In the court of law, those on the witness stand first promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why do we have to do that? Because so often people will merely just lie. Our word is not good enough. They want proof that you're really committed to what you're saying. These Pharisees tried to play games with the words to justify themselves. And Jesus, in verse 17, shows them how foolish this is. He says, you fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Same thing he says in verse 19. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? In each of these cases, Jesus merely is trying to pan back a little bit and show the bigger picture. The only reason the gold is important is because it sits in the temple. Gold out of the temple... They would say it's nothing, but see, the gold is only special because it's there where it is. It's the temple that's helping that. And, and the offering upon the altar, right? you put a bird and burn a bird outside the temple, outside the altar, that's not big. But it's precisely because of the presence of the altar that that offering then becomes special. So he's trying to take it back and say, you can't make a distinction like that. And what Jesus is trying to do is trying to bring him back to say there's, there's bigger things going on here. And that's what he says in verses 20 through 22. There are bigger things going on here. He says, therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And I would think even, and everything that the altar implies. And what does the altar imply? The altar represents and implies our approach to God. That's what happens. When you swear upon the altar, there's some sense where you're swearing upon God's presence. I mean, why did they choose the altar? The altar was in the temple, and the temple was connected by God, and that is a serious thing even today. So I swear to God. Why do people swear to God? Because it's a, a big you know, thing, a reality. And so the altar is connected with God, and Jesus says, hey, listen, you swear by the altar, you swear by everything on it, in it, everything it represents. And Jesus says here, verse 21, you swear by the temple. <clears throat> he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And who dwells in the temple? Certainly the priests do, but God dwelt in the temple in a special way that he didn't dwell on any other place. And the temple represents the presence of God. You swear by the gold of the temple, you are swearing by the temple and the one who dwells in it. You are swearing by God, whether you just say, I swear by the, the temple or what. So he's trying to take us back and say, you're swearing by that. You are swearing in the presence of God. Verse 22, same thing. <clears throat> Here's another phrase he kind of brings in. I swear by heaven, right? He who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Heaven represents God himself, right? What Jesus is saying here is that the sum of everything is this, is that when you speak, you're speaking not only in the presence of men, but also you're speaking in the presence of God. God hears your every conversation. God hears your every promise. God knows the intent of all of your words and you will be accountable to God in the day of judgment for every word you speak. Jesus said, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. The lesson for us is clear. We need to be truthful. Don't be playing games with your words. Don't tell the truth while communicating a lie. Are people good at that? Telling a truth while 
communicating a lie. They might justify themselves and say, well, I didn't lie, right? Because technically they told the truth, but you know what? They communicated a lie, right? They didn't tell a lie, but they communicated a lie. And that's hypocrisy, putting forth a true statement, which is meant to deceive. And God knows full well when you are telling the truth and when you're lying, despite your reasonings to the contrary. And this is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In fact, in that passage, Jesus told us to make no oath at all, either by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or by your hand. And I think that Jesus is getting at this, is that so speak the truth that whether you make an oath or not, your words will be trusted because you tell the truth. Those who follow Christ are going to be straightforward people with straightforward words, remembering the policy. Honesty is the best policy. But we live in a society of lying people. In fact, this week I read a statistic that only 31% of Americans believe that honesty is the best policy. 31% believe that honesty is the best policy. Read some other statistics about lying. Half of American workers admit they regularly call in sick when they're perfectly well. It's a lie. According to one poll, 64% of Americans will say, I will lie when it suits me if it doesn't really cause any damage. We live in a society of lying people. And those statistics ring true in my life. I remember I was in the workforce. I encountered salesmen who were uh, trying to sell me computer equipment, and sometimes they did, and they made promises about what the software would do or what it could do. Oh, yeah, it'll do this, it'll do this, this. You get it? And does it do those things? <laughs> no. Lying. Now I've been pastoring the church a few years. <clears throat> I've spoken with many people who, who feign an interest in the church, and I start pursuing that, you know, and they make some promises. Hey, I'll come to church today. Will you just help me out with 30 bucks? Yeah, I need some help. And I'll, I'm coming to church. Right. I've been had a few times, gone to help people, give them some gas, and they come. Not a one of them. Most people that call me on the phone, you know, hey, can I get a ride to church? I've had people call me on the phone. They want a ride to church. They're not interested in a ride. Right, Lance? We followed up. on. They're not interested in that. They're lying. They want something else coming out of that. Had people even come here? Oh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, we really liked it. We're going to come back. And they come back? No? They're maybe just getting me off their back or, you know, trying to just, well, that's an easy leave. I'll see you. I've had many people, <clears throat> you know, neighbors and the such, you know, yeah, I'm really interested in coming. I, I, I'll come to church sometime. They come? No. I've seen that. People lie. I've seen that. I know that. Perhaps you know that. Maybe you don't have to really push that. It's, it's not sufficient for us today, a handshake or a promise. right? We want it in writing. We want it in proof. right? We live among those who don't tell the truth. Why do you think it is we have so many lawyers in our society? I think it's to deal with the people of lying lips who live among us. <clears throat> in many ways. Certainly there are other reasons. Think about this. You just open the paper any day, and there's always some kind of high-profile judicial case going on all the time, right, where some celebrity is paying a lawyer millions and millions of dollars. Do you know what the celebrity is paying those lawyers millions and millions of dollars to do? Tell the truth, but communicate a lie. Isn't that right? They want them to tell the truth, but communicate a lie. Unless you think it only happens on the grand scale, you know, it happens in the home front as well. I've witnessed households where the children are compulsive liars, even Christian households, where children are compulsive liars. Where are they learning that? They learn from their siblings or from their parents. Merely a reflection of what goes on in the home. I've witnessed it among adults, right? Want to put forth a good show, and so they exaggerate the truth, they stretch the truth. Though if Pinda gets a corner, maybe, well, I, I, I told the truth, but really they're trying to press it to show themselves so good. And I just say, dear people, the scriptures are clear. God hates all forms of lying. Listen to the clear teaching of, Robert, of Proverbs. 
God hates a lying tongue. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 5. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who tells lies will not escape. Because God hates it and God will judge and God will come. Proverbs 24, 28. Do not deceive with your lips. God hates all forms of lying. And it's useless to attempt to justify your lying as these Pharisees did. And I say that if you're in the habit of lying, you are on the road of these Pharisees. You're in danger of facing their condemnation. You say, is the Lord serious about lying? Well, think about the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. What did he do to them? He killed them. Why? Because they lied and they deceived. Yes, the Lord is serious. See, he, here he condemns the Pharisees precisely for their lying. And so if you want to avoid condemnation, keep your promises. Don't play games with your words. Don't be deceptive. Don't exaggerate the truth. Don't paint the picture better than it really is. Now, perhaps at this point, you might be convicted in your soul. Maybe you've spoken words of promise you haven't kept. Maybe you've exaggerated the truth. Maybe you have painted a a better picture of things than they really are. And I just say, what's the solution to that problem? Is the solution to that problem hiding your tracks? It's not. That's exactly what the Pharisees tried to do. They tried to hide themselves. They tried to cover it up. They manipulated their words to justify themselves. But I just say, God will find you out in your lying. Nor is the solution to just pledge, I'm going to tell the truth all the time. The reason I say it's not the solution is because you can't do it. You can't. James says that we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. I certainly stumble in my words. You've seen it the past several weeks. Right? Untrue words will come out of your mouth. You need to deal with them the only way that's ever acceptable to God. Right? If you lie and deceive, the best thing to do is not to lie and deceive and cover it up or to to try to change it or manipulate, the best thing to do is then to be truthful the second time and confess that you lied the first time. Confess it when you have made promises you haven't kept. Confess it when you've exaggerated the truth. Confess it when you've been misleading or deceptive. When you confess your sins, that's when you find mercy at the cross of Christ. He's faithful and just if we confess our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are deceitful in your words, merely confess it and find solace and refuge in the cross. And I say that is the essence of Christianity. It's not that we're perfect, but it's that we're confessing our wrongs and trusting a Savior who cleanses us from all impurity. It's that we plead the Lord to give us strength over victory of our lying lips in the future. That is Christianity. That's the church. We are a bunch of perfect people. If you're around for a period of time, you know that. We're going to rub and sin against others. And we're going to sin in a matter of our speech and not being truthful with each other. But we are a gathering that will willingly admit and confess our wrongs and our hypocrisy and our deceitful dealings. We are a church that wants to trust the Lord to change us and mold us and make us what He wants us to be. So you want to avoid condemnation? Here it is. Be truthful. Second thing, maybe fifth point in my second part message. Point number two, focus on the right things. Focus on the right things. This comes in verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In the days of Jesus, many people had a a little garden patch, which they would grow spices, right, to help them to use for food. And among them that Jesus mentions here are three, mint and dill and cumin. We don't have plants, okay, but we have these things. 
I don't have, we didn't have any mint, okay? <clears throat> I could have gone to the grocery store, I didn't, but mint, we know what mint is, right? Kids know that. When you think of mint, what do you think of? I think of chocolate, right? The nice, cool, refreshing, you know, that's mint. You know what that tastes like. You all know what, what dill is, right? What do you, when you think of dill, what do you think of? Pickles, right? Unless you're talking to Elroy and you, you've pickled some, like, tomatoes and stuff, I think, before, haven't you? And yeah, that's interesting. He had pickled tomatoes. <coughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Jake likes them. He loves them. So maybe next time you do that, just push them off to Jake. <coughs> that's dill. Coming. You all know what coming is? Uh, I didn't know what coming was until last night. I was oh, I got some coming for you. I said, really? Yeah. And, and, I, and I go like this, and I go, tacos. <laughs> that's, that's what coming is. And so these are the spices that we buy in stores, the spices that they just picked off what they needed. And so, you know, they go out and they, they grow in these spices and just kind of pick them off and, and threw them in. And do you know what they did? They took them off. They were in the habit. And I'm going to pour some here. You know, this is this is pretty tiny stuff. And they would say, okay, let's see, one, one, one seed for God and nine seeds for me. And then one for God and nine for me. And one for God and nine for me. And... Very meticulous. I mean, look, it's gone. Or, or these dill things. These are these are amazingly, these are amazingly small. I don't even think I could separate them like that. I mean, they are like teeny, teeny, tiny. And you were looking at some seeds. They were bigger, but even the seeds are pretty difficult to to separate. Such an illustration of how meticulous these Pharisees and scribes were in keeping the law. They would keep even this law with respect to their spices. Now, in and of itself, I don't think that this practice was so wrong. In fact, Jesus commends it. He says, these things you should have done. He commends them for this practice of tithing a tenth of what they had. But what was bad about the practice was that it consumed them and caused them to neglect the other more weightier provisions of the law. There are provisions of the law that are weightier than your mint, dill, and your cumin. These things he identifies for us. He identifies three Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus said you should have prioritized those things. Not not neglecting this tithing of the spices, but prioritize these things because these are more important. We know about priorities, right? A mother knows that a crying baby is more important than the bathroom that needs cleaning today. Right? I mean, the business owner knows it's more important to get the product to the customer than it is to have your human resource policies written. Right? The mechanic knows that a smooth running engine is far more important than a vacuumed interior of the car. And the lover of God knows that obedience is better than sacrifice. Hosea 6 6. It's not that the bathroom isn't important to clean, that the policy manual isn't important to have, or the interior of the car isn't important to vacuum. And it's not that sacrifice isn't important. It's that the other things are more important. <clears throat> These scribes and Pharisees have been so consumed with the minutia of the law, they missed the big things. Picture yourself eating at a restaurant. You order, because you're on the Atkins diet, you order a soup and salad. And uh, you're kind of waiting there, and your, your soup comes, this nice little bowl, and there's, there's nice steam rippling from that. That's pretty nice. And... And on your salad, you know, comes this plate with some lettuce around there. And then there's this big hunk of raw horse meat <coughs> on your salad. And that gets placed before you. And you're like, oh, this looks really good. And, and you, start, you start going at your salad a little bit. You start eating some lettuce. And you start looking at And then the, there's a fly in your soup. And you say, waiter, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. What's the fly doing in my soup? And the waiter says, the backstroke, right? And you make all this stink about this little fly in your soup. And there's big hunk of raw horse flesh meat on your salad. You think nothing of it, just eating that raw horse meat. And you think, wait, see, that's silly. That's crazy, right? But that's the exact imagery that Jesus uses. Look what he says in verse 24. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
Particularly, they might even have reference to what they do in, in sipping wine, you know, trying to keep the gnat, keep the bugs out of the wine. And so here they, they pay meticulous attention trying to keep the, the gnat out of the, the wine, and yet here they have a camel in the wineskin, and it's no big deal. That's how big justice and mercy and faithfulness are compared to the gnat in the soup. The scribes and Pharisees majored on the minors and minored on the majors. In this case, Jesus merely points out their obsession with their tithing practices. We could also point out their Sabbath observances. In Matthew 12, remember when they were upset with Jesus because he healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath? It's like they missed mercy. And they, and, and they were so irate that they went, Matthew 12, 14, that they went to try to kill him on that day. So angrier they were with Jesus because the Sabbath had been so high and exalted that that's like the big thing. Forget mercy down here. In fact, that's when Jesus even quotes Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. We could say the same thing maybe about hand washing. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees were more concerned about the traditional methods and how they were washing their hands than they were about the commands of God. And Jesus showed that to them. The Pharisees are so focused on the legal requirements of the law, they missed the heart of the law, which Jesus summarized here as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He summarized another place by love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perhaps that's the top. Maybe these others are down a little bit, but they express the same thing, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I think perhaps Jesus had in the back of his mind Micah 6, 8. You familiar with that verse? He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I mean, maybe it's not the exact same words, but the same kind of context. And if you, if you skip back up in Micah 6, 6 and 7, the discussion there in that passage is, is all about how shall I come before the Lord? How shall I bow down? Shall I come with burnt offerings or yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of sacrifices? Shall I present my firstborn? For my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body. And he says, no, no, no. It's not the sacrifices. What I want is you to walk humbly, justly, and kindly before your God. You see, it's not the legal requirement of law that God wants. It's not, it's not what he's after. He's after a life of integrity. He's after a life of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Justice really describes the process of really being fair with people. Justice doesn't have room for favoritism or elitism. It gives to each their due without being a respecter of persons. Right? The one who gives much to support the synagogue ought to be treated the same that the one who is poor and can't give at all. The beautiful person ought to be treated like the one of homely appearance. That's justice. Just it's an equitableness. It's a fairness. Mercy describes the attitude of heart that's kind to others, especially when they don't deserve it. Mercy overflows with compassion and love, and goodwill towards others. And even when sin, people sin against you, in fact, I would say this, it's precisely when people sin against you that you have the opportunity to show mercy. Faithfulness. Some versions say faith. Just trusting in God. <clears throat> Perhaps faithfulness is better. Describes a steady commitment of love towards another. You know, faith is just a steady commitment and trust to God, right? In good times and bad times, faithfulness is the steady line that's going to be consistent. It's going to be the dependable person, going to be the one who's, who's always willing to come and share and, ha- and give a helping hand. That's faithfulness. The scribes had missed it. They'd focused their attention on the minutia of the law rather than on the character of the one in whom the Lord delights. The Lord delights in character and integrity and uprightness. And the same warning really ought to come to us today's church. Oh, in the church today, we may not be paying attention to our spices. But there are many in the church that are focused on the wrong things. I can think of many things that diverted the church from the main core of godliness. Especially those churches focused on legalistic practices. I mean, the more legalistic you become, the more and more those things are elevated. The more and more one's dress when they come to church is elevated. The more and more one's movie attendance or lack thereof, right, becomes the most important thing, right? The more church attendance comes, that's like the most important thing. 
the more just everything, all these obedience, the right Bible version that you use, that becomes the main thing. And oftentimes those churches can forget and neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. I want to expand on a few dangers really for us today. Maybe just even are outside of the realm of legalism. Those are pretty easy. But here, let me give you one. There are many churches focused on church growth. So focused on church growth, that's what they want. In fact, they will do anything it takes to get people in their services. Even, perhaps if you read the uh, Rockford Register Star this week, even riding a big Dukes of Hazard motorcycle up in front of the church audience so that everyone can see this thing. You can look back in your newspapers this week. Just doing anything. Changing the message. Right? Asking people what they want and giving them what they want because church numbers and church growth is like the big thing. Yvonne and I have a friend of ours who periodically checks in with us by email and his question always is, every time he writes, old family friend, he always says, well, how many people are in your congregation now, Steve? How many people are coming to church now? That's the only question he ever asks about our church. That's the only thing he's interested in. How big's your church? About a year ago, I wrote an article in the Food for the Flock. I think it was a January, February article. I called it Church Growth. I, I wrote... The first line of that article, I said, the church in America is infatuated with the idea of church growth. Infatuated, just so consumed by it, that becomes the most important thing. You want to be in a church that's growing. You want to do everything we can to grow. While preparing that article, I was amazed. I'd never thought about this before, but I was amazed. The Bible nowhere tells a church to grow in numbers. Can't find it. It's nowhere. In fact, nowhere in all the New Testament is a church ever rebuked because there weren't enough people at church. In the New Testament, churches are rebuked for idolatry and immorality and ungodliness, but never for lack of numbers. The admonition in the Bible is always grow in grace. The admonition is always to to be mature and to be a light. And that's where our focus ought to be. Growing in grace and maturing is the important thing when you think about church and growth, right? Maturing in these things, right? Becoming more faithful and becoming more just and more merciful. That's far more important than church growth. But I think, and I fear today, that so many people are so focused on church growth that they have missed the weightier provisions of the law. How about another thing? I need to be careful on this, but there are many churches that are focused on doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity becomes the end-all, end-all. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I think doctrinal purity is very important. Uh, I think it's very important for us. In fact, it's a common doctrine that's going to ultimately unite us. And you all know that I'm meticulous about that, and I want to make sure that we understand and know and are united in our doctrine. But I would say that there are some who take doctrinal purity and put it so much at the top of their priorities that the doctrine becomes the main thing. A church becomes very scholastic. Often what happens in that case, you become so knowledgeable of the Bible that a judgmental spirit comes about because all of a sudden you know what's right and what's wrong, and they're wrong, and I'm going to tell them so. And you've like missed justice. You've missed mercy. In elevating doctrinal purity so high, you've missed the other thing. A degree of arrogance can creep in. Church can become exclusive and separatistic. Well, if someone doesn't agree with me on all the doctrinal areas, why can't be involved in ministry with them at all? And oftentimes, right, these things take place. They lead to a lack of injustice and mercy and faithfulness. I just say that we need to be careful at Rock Valley Bible Church of having doctrine become the main thing, that we miss the other things. The main thing is how we live and how we love God. And so many times people then will lack and slack on other things they might do because they're so interested in their doctrinal purity. It's a tension I face. I do. Okay, last thing here. Maybe this. There are many churches that have lost their focus on the most important thing. And what is the most important thing? It's the gospel of Christ. So many churches have lost their focus. And if anything's to be at the center of our lives, it ought to be Christ and all that he has done for us on our behalf. Right? When, when Paul gave the Ephesian elders over to the Ephesians, what do you do? I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. 
just the, the message of His grace and kindness to us. But it's amazing how easy is it for our churches to get away from this. How easy is it to focus upon programs, all the programs that we're doing. And yet you're so filled with the programs that you miss the reason why you're doing it all. It's because you love God and Christ and it's become so marvelous to you. You can focus on buildings. Uh, I've spoken with a man in recent days, talked about a, a church that has built before. It was like in an in, in a auditorium like this. And, and they're excited and vibrant. And then they built this church and he said the whole perspective and demeanor of the church, spirituality has gone down. There's so much focus on the building. Because the building's become the main thing. Right, the gospel. Right, focuses, churches can easily focus on the methods. This is how we do it. Or can focus on the music that they do. This is how you do it. Or can focus on the rules and the regulations rather than putting the saving power of Christ being the main thing. I mean, how is it that we can live justly and with mercy and with faith and faithfulness? How is it? It's only through the cross. And apart from the cross, you won't live justly. You won't live with mercy. You won't live with faithfulness. Really, it's a great segue for us this morning. I forgot to mention earlier, but we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. It's an opportunity for us, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's an opportunity to really look back and reflect upon the death of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, we do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a great opportunity for us, the church, really, to, to bring it all back to the focus of what is the most important thing. What is the right thing to look on, reflect upon? It's the cross of Christ. I've been struck. We've been going through the doctrines of grace in our home Bible studies, our flock groups. And we were talking this last week about unconditional election. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose us in Him to be holy and blameless. And uh, we looked at Ephesians 1, and it says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, which were holy and blameless. And I'm, we, we started thinking about what this means. This is before the foundation of the world. How did God choose us? In Christ. So you start, you start thinking about this a little bit, okay? It's before the world began, He knew of everything that's going to take place. He knew of the fall. He knew we'd need a Redeemer. And He knew that Jesus would come. And He chose us to be complete in Him in that day. Just the, the, the cross is like the center of everything of our relationship with God. Eternity past. We're saved, that's how we're saved. And even in the future to come, right? We've studied in past weeks, Revelation 5. If anything that ought to teach us, our worship ought to be Christ-centered. It ought to be focused on the Redeemer Christ who has redeemed us. That is the cross. That is the Lord's Supper. We're going to take bread and we're going to take the cup, the fruit of the vine. We're just going to eat it, kind of allow us to taste a little bit, bring our other senses into just everything that we mean and trust when we think of Christ. So what I'd have you do now is even bow your heads. Reflect upon the cross of Christ. Is the cross of Christ your main thing? Is Jesus your all in all? Do you come this morning because of the great reconciliation that you know has taken place in your life with Jesus? Can you say even that you desire to see the glory of Christ? You know, that's what Jesus prayed. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the goal of his saving us is that we might be with him in glory, that we might see his glory. Do you long to see the glory of Christ? To consume your hearts and your passion. Do you realize that the only way you can be forgiven before God is through faith in Him. You realize that no other world religion has a Redeemer. The Jews and the Muslims merely hope that God will be unjust in granting mercy to them. But we know that through the cross of Christ, God can be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Because upon His body, upon the cross, He took our sins. 
just cause you to stir up and your soul ought to well up within you and really just cause you to ask, how is it, why is it that my God would die for a, a wretched worm like me? Why is it that my Savior would bleed for me? To make a sinful one like me, your chosen, precious child. God, why is it? Only by His grace. It's only by His mercy. If you're trusting in the mercy of Christ this morning, I I encourage you to take the bread, take the cup as it comes by. But if you're not, you're trusting your own righteousness, you're rebellious against the Lord, don't take the cup and the bread as they come by. And Father, I do pray, as we look upon, reflect upon the cross of Christ, we think of all that He did on Calvary. I pray that even through my message this morning, You might show us our sin as greater than it ever was before. We might see the cross as greater than it ever has been in our mind before. We see Jesus high and lifted up. See Him lovely. See Him who knew no sin dying for us who were sin. Becoming sin that we might become righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would glory in Christ. Even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, touch us in a special way. God, as we bring to remembrance exactly the things you tell us to do. This ordinance that Jesus has told us to do. May it come to us special. May it, may it stir our hearts as we taste and drink, reflecting upon everything that Jesus did in the, in the upper room with his disciples. Be with us now, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.